You may be seated. Several centuries ago, people on the island of Yap, about 800 miles north of Papua New Guinea, had a problem. They wanted to transform their barter economy into a money economy, but there was no gold or silver or any of the usual stuff of money to be found where they lived. But one day, explorers from Yap were visiting other islands where they discovered these great, big, wonderful calcite deposits. And they got an idea. Since the stone would have to be transported back to Yap by little boats, it would be scarce. So they carved it into circles, some of them as large as 12 feet tall, and they called it money. True story. The people of Yap were happy. They now had their very own currency, so they no longer had to trade a cow or a field or their labor directly for the other thing they wanted. They could now, they could now hand over a 2,000-pound ring of calcite instead. How convenient, right? Maybe you see the problem. Put a coin like that in your pocket and your loincloth's going to be a little crooked. <laughs> so instead of moving the actual stone over to your neighbor's house when you paid for that second daughter's dowry, you would just sign over your stone in a document, even if the coin remained on the side of the road leading out of town. But the story continues. One day, a money mining crew was returning to the island with one of these unwieldy coins when a storm hit. Their little bamboo boat capsized, the stone fell out, and it sank to the bottom of the sea. I know what you're thinking. The banking system of Yap collapsed, and an elaborate government bailout followed that involved ropes and pulleys and Micronesian divers breathing through very long reeds. But you're wrong. You see, the sensible people of Yap weren't bothered by the accident at all. They decided it really didn't matter if your coin was in your living room or your neighbor's sheep pasture or down at the bottom of the ocean. What mattered was that you just had some documented claim on it. And so the morning after your savings literally went overboard, you still could have traded a portion of your stone for a basket of sea cucumbers, or a really nice beetle nut sheath. I don't actually know what a beetle nut sheath is, but they had them on Yop, and it's very fun to say. The obvious truth that this story exposes is that some things in this world actually have no intrinsic value at all. Money, chief among them. You can make it out of stones, or paper, or pixels on a screen. The actual value, the true worth, is in the people, not the currency. But even unwieldy circles of stone can take on meaning when their value is tied to the lives and labors of actual people. It's when we confuse that, confuse what in God's eyes has actual worth and how meaning is made in our lives that I think things can go awry. The Lord called me before I was born, said the prophet Isaiah. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. Isaiah is talking about his own special, unique, prophetic call, his deepest identity. And he's telling us that it was not something that he's chosen or achieved. It was knit into who he was while he was still coming to be within his mother. Isaiah had a particular vocation, but Christians and Jews have believed for a long time that the same is true of each of us. We are creatures made in the image of God, which means we are each of infinite worth, 
not as somebody else's currency, but simply by being the person God called into being and named as you. But Isaiah's call suggests there's another dimension to our lives. Our worth as human beings is a gift of God. Meaning, however, meaning is something that none of us finds entirely on our own. In Isaiah's case, he says he's a polished arrow, hidden away in God's quiver. His life will find its meaning as it's put to use by God. Specifically, his life will find meaning as he speaks and works for the restoration of Israel. As Israel's gathered back together, restored to right relationship again, healed. Isaiah was Isaiah, God's beloved and valued child from before the time he was born. But he would find meaning as he was launched into a life of relationship with others. And to what end does Israel need to be restored? Is it so they will once again deserve to be God's chosen? Is it to prove their worth as a nation? No, it's not. They're to be restored to their essential identity as God's people... So that their chosenness can find meaning as a light to other nations. To strangers and far off people who were also named as God's own from before they were born. It's the same pattern, isn't it? The same wisdom as if it's knit into the very fabric of creation itself. Our worth, your worth is a fact. Given by God before you could earn it. But our lives take on meaning as we give them away. This is a delicate balance to keep, but so, so essential for a flourishing Christian life. When Dr. Martin Luther King wrote his letter from a Birmingham jail, I think he was living into this tension. He'd been criticized, if you remember, as an outside agitator, a meddler in the affairs of other people in other towns. To which he wrote back, I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century B.C. left their villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns. And just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Like so many others before and since, Dr. King had been sent out to be a light to other people in other places. But as you probably know, he was not writing this letter to his bitterest enemies and opponents at all. It was to Birmingham clergy, many of whom thought his cause was generally just. They just thought he should go it a little more slowly. Now I doubt Martin Luther King cared much at all about Bull Connor's opinion of him at this point. But I suspect, as he wrote to these fellow clergy from that cell, he was not only justifying his cause. He also must have been reminding himself that his worth had to rest on something more stable than the perceptions of other people. Even those whom he'd trusted and depended on at other times. Even those he'd been sent out to serve, perhaps. Isaiah And Dr. King and so many others have called us to live lives of greater wholeness, grounded lives that better balance action and contemplation, to use Richard Rohr's terms. 
It will take prayer and contemplation and community to deepen the trust that our ultimate value really is given only by God. But it will also take action from the small exchanges of everyday living to those occasional acts of courageous defiance to which the people of God are sometimes called, especially when the worth and dignity of other children of God is being denied. You don't have to be a Hebrew prophet or a great civil rights leader for this wisdom to apply. Your value, your worth is just as given, just as sure. Return to this truth, remind us of it in love, and remember that it also applies to everybody else you will meet today, no matter how damaged or strayed. And then let your life be a light, an arrow of God aimed at the restoration of whatever corner of the world you've been shot into for true meaning for your one wild and precious life, as the poet called it, is only there to be found.